What's the best known trick that a lion tamer does? You know, don't you? It's putting his head in the jaws of a lion. Now, this morning, I'm going to put my head in the jaws of the lion. But before any children get too excited, that's just a phrase. And it's a phrase that means doing something risky. And before the children get too excited about what that risky thing is, I'll bring your expectations down a little more, it is to talk about marriage and male-female relationships. And that can be putting your head in the jaws of the lion because it's sensitive. And one of the reasons it's sensitive is because it's relevant to all of us. Um, For some it's relevant in a rather painful way because we can have a lot of pain in this area of marriage and male-female relationships. It's obviously relevant if you're married or hope to be married. But if you're neither of those, you you still live in a world dominated and shaped by the male-female relationship and so it's still relevant to you. And we're hearing this because we've got to Genesis 2 verse 18 as we're going through Genesis. Let's turn to that now, right at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 to 25. Page numbers are on the pink sheet and some notes to show you where we're going with this. Now Genesis is a book of origins. Genesis actually means origins. And last time... We were hearing about the origin of work, how it started, how it's gone wrong and where it's heading. And this time we're going to do similar with marriage, how it started, how it's gone wrong, where it's heading. And that means that this morning is going to be about more than just marriage. It's not just going to be about marriage because it's also looking where is it all heading what is the place that this is setting in the Bible, which, isn't, which is far from just about marriage? So there will still be lessons for those who are not married, so please keep listening. We're going to hear four things that we need to know about marriage. The first two are from Genesis 2, and then the next two, much more briefly, move beyond that, further into the Bible. So, four things about marriage. The first is, marriage is for serving God. And we'll get this from verses 18 to 20. Now, as you read Genesis 1, you keep hearing about all that God made. He looked and he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And repeatedly he saw that it was good. And so, chapter 2, verse 18, is a bit of a shock. For the first time, God saw that something was not good. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is very frequently misunderstood. It's taken like this. Oh, poor old Adam. There he is in the garden, but he's lonely. Uh, He's surrounded by animals, but a pet dog or a goldfish don't meet his relational needs. So poor old Adam, God will make him a wife. But that's not what's going on here. Why do I say that's not what's going on here? Well, because of one of the most basic rules for understanding the Bible. What's one of the most basic rules for understanding any verse in the Bible? Look at the context. And the context here is back in chapter 1, verse 28. Well, we could look at 26 through to 28, where we have... God making man in his image. And God making man to serve him. 
by caring for the world. So, for example, verse 28 of chapter 1. God blessed them, that's the man and the woman, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Put here as God's representatives to serve him. And then chapter 2 gives more detail. It narrows the focus down to the garden where this man is and where God and man enjoy each other's company and man serves God. Notice that, very important. God and man enjoy each other's company and man serves God. So man isn't lonely. He's got the best companion you could have. He's with God. But he is alone, in a sense, in his work. He needs help with his service. And so God doesn't say in verse 18, poor old Adam, he's lonely, I'll make a companion. He says, man is alone in his service, I will make a suitable helper. Twice he says, verse 18, and then at the end of verse 20, I'll make a suitable helper. Genesis 2 is not God invented marriage to deal with loneliness. It's God invented marriage to help us to serve him. Now, straight away, we can start to get some lessons from that before we dive into any more detail. Here's one. If you're not married, I hope you're still listening, because straight away we can see something here for you. And it's this. Marriage is not the Bible's answer to loneliness. It's a help with loneliness, but it's not the Bible's answer to loneliness. Yes, the Bible has a very high view of marriage. It recommends enjoying marriage. But it also recommends friendship and fellowship between Christians within God's family and enjoying knowing God and seeking him. And all of those are seen as answers to loneliness and expressions of love. Children, you know about David and Goliath, don't you? Last week, uh, people here were hearing about David and Goliath. But do you know about David between being a shepherd boy, fighting Goliath, and becoming king, and what life was like for him? It was very lonely, because he was on the run with King Saul trying to kill him. How did he cope with that? Was it through the support of his wife? Sadly not. His wife was very unsupportive. It was through a close friendship. He had this great close friend called Jonathan, who happened to be Saul's son. I think we, and I know I, undervalue the importance of working at friendships. They're quite an important topic in the Bible. Here's another lesson from this. Think of your life in terms of service. That's what we're put here for. So children again, what do you want to be when you get older? Got any ideas? Got any plans? Got any big ambitions? Do you want to be rich and famous? Maybe a Premier League footballer or a celebrity singer and you could be rich and famous. Want to live in a nice big house and drive a Ferrari? Or or maybe you've just got some other job. You you really would love to do that. It's good to have plans. It's good to have big ambitions. It's good to reach high. But not to make yourself rich and famous... Big ambitions to serve God, to do something for him that will matter. Children, have you got that ambition? I want to do something to serve God that will matter. 
that's much more likely to make you happy. Because you were put here by God to serve him. There are lessons here for those who are married. And and the lesson is, is a simple one. See your marriage in this context. Marriage is for the purpose of serving God. Our tendency is, well, life is about me fulfilling my dreams. And then you get married and you just add that into life still being about me fulfilling my dreams. Well, that will be trouble. That will be trouble because life isn't about you or me and God will not allow your idols to satisfy you. It will be trouble because you're placing on your marriage a bigger expectation than it can deliver on. And it will be trouble because... You're just thinking as an individual, but you're no longer an individual. No. Instead, you need to think like this. Life is about God and how to serve him. Now you're married, two have become one. And so the two of you must together think about how do you serve him? Married couples, are you doing that? Do you talk together about that? Or are you individuals pursuing your dreams and rubbing up against each other when your dreams clash with each other? Now, again, I'm aware, as I say this, I'm I'm, I'm talking about very sensitive issues because that relies on having a spouse that you can talk these things through with. And you're on the same page wanting to serve God. And I know not all have that. I am aware I am treading on some painful matters that we need God's grace with. But here's another lesson for those who are married. Marriage is for the purpose of serving God. Also means your marriage shouldn't be too self-absorbed. Now, some people's marriages are like a home with no windows or doors. Would you fancy living in a house with no windows or doors? Some people's marriages are like that. So inward-looking, self-absorbed. It's not healthy for their marriage. And it's not doing what God intended. Marriages that serve God by benefiting others. Other people's marriages are a bit like a goldfish bowl. I think this is rarer, but it does happen to some. Do you fancy living in a goldfish bowl? It's just, there's never any private time to work at themselves and how they relate. So, married couples, ask yourselves, do you have a healthy number of windows and doors? There's a right balance in terms of numbers of windows and doors in your marriage. Lessons for marriage, I'd like actually, well I would half like to spend some time on the word helper here. There's a lot in this word helper, we have in verse 18, what it means, how a wife is a helper, why it's not insulting, it's a very exalted term in the Bible. But we're not going to have time and I'm going to need to move on. And some might recognise that's me slightly pulling my head out of the jaws of the lion. But it's also because we need to move on. Marriage is for the service of God, and marriage is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Now here in chapter 2 is Adam, and he's made in God's image, and he's given a fulfilling role, and he's given amazing abilities. Who knows what abilities a man without sin and without the fall has. And he's given an ideal home to live in, and he's got daily contact with God. And you'd, be, you'd think it would be reasonable for verse 18 to say, well, Adam could do with a helper, but I've done enough for him. I've really given him an awful lot. He'll get by. 
He could do with someone else, but he'll get by because I've given him so much already. But God doesn't say that. He wants Adam to have the best. He wants Adam to have all the good gifts that God could give. And so he invents marriage. It's a gift from God. Now straight away we can jump into some more lessons from that. Children, here's, here's the number one thing, children, I want you to get from this morning. And it's this. It's very simple. God is good. And you can remember that, can't you? Very simple lesson to remember from this morning. God is good. But I want you to more than remember it. I want you to be persuaded that it's true. Because ever since the snake in Genesis 3, there's been a lie around that God isn't good. That God is a spoil sport. That doing your own thing will make you happier than doing what God says. But that's a lie. He is good. Look here at him. He wants to provide all he can for Adam. He wants everything to be very good. And he loves to give good things to us. The most important thing, children, you could get from this morning is God is good. To be really persuaded of it. So when you're invited to that party on a Sunday morning and your parents say, sorry, but you're going to church instead, you don't think God spoils my fun. God isn't being nasty. He knows what is good for you. And what's good for you isn't always what's most fun. I know that's hard to understand when you're little because you think fun is good. But what's good for you isn't always what's most fun. Here's another lesson. If you're not married, notice marriage is a, a good gift from God. It's not the good gift. There are many good gifts from God. And only one is absolutely necessary. And only one must you put all your efforts into getting. And that's his son. To belong to him. To be safely in him. To be under his loving care. That's the one gift you must make sure you've got. You cannot do without that gift. And ask God for that gift because he's good and he loves to give that gift. Here's another lesson. Marriage is God's gift, so it's it's got to be done his way. When I was a child, I remember one birthday, I got a radio-controlled car. I was very pleased with this radio-controlled car. And I don't know why I did this, but on my birthday, I decided to adjust it. I decided to make some improvements to it. And in the process, I broke part of it. And I was surprised how cross my dad was. I thought you weren't allowed to be that cross when it's my birthday. But... It wasn't surprising, because he'd given me a good gift, more expensive than I usually got, and I'd misused it, and it was in danger of getting broken. And we misuse God's gift when we as a society say a man can marry a man, or a woman can marry a woman. It's like saying a a circle can have square sides. We misuse God's gift when we act like a married couple, even if we're not married. We misuse God's good gift when we use marriage for our own selfish ends. It's not just acts of parliament that can misuse God's gifts, it's us in our daily lives. Marriage is God's gift, and the emphasis here is on what a good gift it is. So let's move into verse 21 onwards. Verse 21 onwards, where it's emphasised, what a good gift Now, what is this funny thing in verse 21 about Adam's rib? 
Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? Especially in our society, a woman made out of a man's rib. Is she just a spare part? Well, no, it's emphasising she's like the man. It's emphasising she's just like him. She comes from him and she's like him. Even if we didn't, wouldn't have got, that's what it's saying, Adam got that because look how he responds Verse 23, as soon as he sees her, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And it's not just an accident of English that woman has a similarity to man in the words. It it does in the Hebrew this was written in, and I guess it did in whatever language Adam spoke as well. The emphasis here is on similarity and suitability. One old preacher hundreds of years ago said this, Eve wasn't made from Adam's head to rule him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from his side and equal, to close to his heart to be loved, under his arm to be protected and cared for. It's a rather quaint saying by that old preacher, but I think it's lovely. It's a lot better than anything that feminism or sexism will give you. And it's an important lesson for us because we live in a society where there is such tension and battle of the sexes and women seeing men as the problem. So isn't it funny that recently an MP said we should have an all-women cabinet? Then we'll get Brexit done, yeah, likely, because men are the problem. And then men say, oh, no, no, but women are the problem. Christians shouldn't get involved in that because God made men and women suitable for each other. That's the emphasis here. Suitable because of the ways that they are the same and suitable because of the ways they are different and complement each other. Let's move on to verse 25. What's this? That's another funny verse, isn't it? What's this funny thing in verse 25? The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What's this about nakedness? Why have you got clothes on today? Well, in England, often it's to keep you warm, but not really today. You don't need them today, do you? Well, I'm very glad you've got your clothes on today. Because otherwise, there would be a firestorm of sin going on in minds here, wouldn't there? To be blunt and realistic. We have clothes on to cover up. We'd feel very vulnerable without them. We have clothes on. It's, it's a show as well, isn't it? It gives an image. All sorts of different images from the different clothes that you wear. And verse 25 is saying, there wasn't any of that then. There was no sin to guard against. There was nothing to feel vulnerable about. There was no putting on a show. There was complete openness with no barriers between each other. Now, that's a great aim to have within a marriage. That's something to work at within a marriage. And that's a good lesson we can get from verse 25. But it's not the main reason verse 25 is here. The main reason is this. How did chapter 1 end? How did chapter 1 end? Have a look. 
It ended like this. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And how is chapter 2 ending? The same. It's saying it was so good there was nothing needed to be covered up. Chapter 2 verse 25 is really the climax. God has made a world where there's no reason for shame. There's nothing needing covering up. There's nothing needing to be hidden away. It is very good. And it's ending like that before you hit chapter 3. And to show us just how terribly chapter 3 goes wrong. So, we better get into chapter 3. Marriage is for, the, for serving God. It's a gift from God. But in chapter 3, it is spoilt by turning away from God. Now, I have no need to tell you we're not like chapter 2. There are so many barriers between people. There are so many things to be ashamed of. There is so much brokenness in marriages and in society. What's made it go wrong? Children, do you know the answer? What in chapter 3 made everything go wrong? Well, children, you might say they ate the forbidden fruit, and you'd be right. You might say the snake, which was Satan in disguise, tempted them, and you'd be right. But you might also say this, they believed the lie, God is not good. There's some good thing God is keeping back from us, and we must have it. Do you see, again, the most important thing this morning for you to be persuaded of is God is good. You might also say this, what went wrong? Because they didn't believe God is good, they weren't happy to serve him. No, we're not going to serve him. We're not going to do the role he's given us. We will do our own thing. And all of that spoilt marriage. Now, I'm hoping in a few weeks' time, when we get into Genesis 3, we'll have a look properly at how it spoilt marriage and spoilt everything else. Uh, But for the moment, just see this. We spoil marriage when we don't believe God is good. And we say, we'll do it our way, because we're not persuaded his way really works. We spoil marriage when we make it all about self, not a way to serve God. I was with someone very recently whose son's marriage has just broken up. And I said, what what do you think has caused it to break up? And he said, I think the heart of it is simply his wife has fallen for the lie that happiness comes from pursuing our own aim rather than from serving God together. But, again, like chapter 2, Genesis 3 isn't there mainly to give us advice on marriage. It does give us advice on marriage, but that's not the main aim. The main aim is to teach us history. Do you like history? Well, you need to know history. And this is the most important history. It's to show us how the world has gone wrong. It's to show us we need the God who is so good. He loved this wrong world and sent his son. So let's move on to the last thing. Marriage is spoilt by turning away from God, but then lastly, marriage is pointing to a better gift from God. It's a pointer to a better gift. Now, children, did you know that sometimes people go a long way to get a wife? I know someone called Hugh, 
And he lived in Norfolk. Well, he still does. But years ago, he lived in Norfolk as a single man. And his friends thought, he needs a wife. We'll try to get him a wife. And they thought, there is a suitable young woman called Lois who's moving to this country. She lives abroad. And she's going to land at Heathrow and she's going to need a lift. We will get Hugh to give her a lift in his car. Well, Hugh liked this idea, and he drove from the depths of Norfolk to Heathrow. And as he drove, he said to himself, I mustn't look too keen. I mustn't look too keen. Then he thought to himself, I'm driving all the way from Norfolk to Heathrow and back. How can I not look keen? Jesus came all the way from heaven to earth to get his wife. Do you reckon he's keen on her? Jesus went all the way to the cross to get his wife. Do you reckon he's keen on her? Jesus paid the ultimate price for his wife. In some societies, you have to pay to get a wife. Well, I suppose in every society it costs you a bit. But he gave up his life for her. Do you reckon he's keen on his wife? Who on earth is this lucky woman? Who is this wife? who's loved so much, it's his church. Which doesn't mean this brick building. It doesn't mean an organisation with its headquarters in Rome or Canterbury or anywhere else. It means his people. It means those who are trusting him. That's why we read Ephesians 5. It's not the only place in the Bible, but it's the best place in the Bible for seeing the wife of Jesus, the bride of Jesus, is the people who are trusting him. His church. So, marriage is good, but don't mistake the signpost for the destination. Don't mistake the signpost for the destination. You're going on holiday and you're getting excited about going to the beach and then you see one of those brown signs with a sandcastle on it. Now that gets you excited. The beach is coming up. But you don't stop there, do you? You don't get out your buckets and spades and start digging round the signpost, do you? No, because it's just a signpost. The destination is this way. It's pointing you to the real thing. Marriage is good, but at its best, it is still just a pointer to the real thing. And the real thing is the union between Jesus and his church, his people. I reckon possibly the most idolised thing in the world is marriage. Do you know that? Most idols are good things. We turn good things into idols. Marriage is a good thing. But we turn it into an idol because we stop at the signpost instead of looking beyond to the destination, which is we're going to be with Jesus at the marriage feast of the Lamb. So, on your notice sheet, I called this sermon A Marriage Made in Paradise, which is obviously playing on people talk about a match made in heaven. A marriage made in paradise. There were two marriages made in paradise, and only two. One was the marriage of Adam and Eve, and the other was the marriage of Christ and his church. Now, obviously, you can't be... If you want a marriage made in paradise, obviously, you can't be part of Adam and Eve's marriage. That's been and gone. But you can be part of the marriage of Jesus and his church. Because here we have in the gospel his proposal to you. Did you know that? 
Jesus is proposing to you. He's asking you, will you come under my arm? Will you shelter in my love? Will you take on my name? Will you leave your old identity and become one with me? Will you come under my authority and headship? That's Jesus' proposal to you. What do you answer to his proposal? He's ready to accept a genuine yes. Is that what you have for him? And if you do, even the best marriage here on earth has what hanging over it? What are the words hanging over it from the, from the wedding service? Till death us do part. Marriage is a good thing, but it's always till death us do part. But when we join ourselves to Jesus, he promises us this. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. What do you answer to his proposal?